Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Okay, welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino, coming to you after a month-long hiatus for the holidays. Happy 2022, everyone. And for today's episode, I'm joined by a guest who should be familiar to some of our regular listeners, David L. Hudson Jr. David, welcome back onto the show. Thanks for having me, Nico. So our listeners will recall David is an assistant professor of law at Belmont University. He's an author, co-author, or co-editor of, I believe, more than 40 books. He's also the Justice Robert H. Jackson Legal Fellow for FIRE and a First Amendment Fellow for the Freedom Forum Institute. And on the past podcasts, we've had David on to discuss some of the exceptions that exist to the First Amendment's free speech clause, such as true threats. I believe we recorded that podcast maybe back in 2018 or so. And then incitement, which was in the news after the January 6th events of 2021. But today we're going to be talking about fighting words, which is technically an exception to the First Amendment. I'll say technically, and we'll kind of get into a discussion of why technically needs to be applied there. But David, you've written a lot about this topic, uh, perhaps more so than anyone else out there. And you had an article in the ABA Journal, the American Bar Association Journal, where you wrote that people can and have been arrested for uttering profanity in public, cursing in a canoe, engaging in a toilet tirade in their own home, or cursing near a school or church. And a lot of the justifications for this punishment come from the fighting words doctrine. So can you talk to us about what the fighting words doctrine is? Absolutely. And it's actually really astute on your part to have me discuss all three because fighting words, true threats, and incitement are all cousins in the First Amendment family. Fighting words or the fighting words doctrine was created by the U.S. Supreme Court back in 1942 in a case called Szaplinski versus New Hampshire. And writing for unanimous court, Justice Frank Murphy defined them as, quote, words which by their very utterance inflict injury or cause an immediate breach of the peace. The case involved uh, Jehovah Witness Walter Szaplinski, who allegedly was denouncing other religions, got into a dispute with other citizens, and then also got into a dispute with uh, Marshall Bowering, I believe, who was a semi-pro professional football player. Interesting factual dispute as to who did what, but the net effect was Szaplinski called him a damned fascist and racketeer, which seems pretty mild by today's <laughs> cultural... And this this professional football player, he was a cop, right? Yeah, he was a cop. He was a, mar- a marshal. And wasn't he called to the to the situation because people there were threatening violence against Walter Chaplinsky? He was getting yeah, exactly. Up. You know, in a, in a sense, it, at least according to some, Chaplinsky was the victim. But as it turns out, the victim gets arrested and is charged with fighting words or charged with disorderly conduct under a very very broad uh, New Hampshire law. 
I think this occurred in Rochester, New Hampshire, but there was a New Hampshire law that essentially prohibited any offensive or annoying speech. And of course, to you and I, that's just laughably overbroad. Yeah, a fascist and a goddamn racketeer. If everyone, if people were thrown in jail for calling someone else a fascist today, uh, there'd be a whole lot of people <laughs> exactly. in jail, wouldn't there? Exactly. And what's fascinating is, is it was the New Hampshire Supreme Court that first used the term fighting words. And then Justice Frank Murphy, I guess, and his law clerks adopted that when they wrote the opinion. So the court adopted fighting words. Um, the court, the Supreme Court, when I say the court, the U.S. Supreme Court narrowed the fighting words doctrine quite significantly in what is my favorite First Amendment case of all time, Cohen versus California, the uh, fuck the draft case, where Paul Robert Cohen wore a jacket with the inscription, a fuck the draft in the back. He, he goes into a Los Angeles County courthouse. He takes the jacket off and sits down quietly. A police officer spots the jacket and is very upset and goes to the judge and asks the judge to hold Mr. Cohen in contempt. And for whatever reason, the judge says, no, I'm not going to do that. So the police officer waits for Mr. Cohen to come out into the lobby and uh, arrests him for violating California disturbing the peace law. And what was very significant about the Cohen case for purposes of the fighting words doctrine is that the U.S. Supreme Court essentially narrowed the fighting words doctrine to direct face-to-face personal insults. And Justice John Marshall Harlan II, who wrote the majority opinion, emphasized that the F the draft message was not directed at any particular recipient, right? It was just a an anti-war message. Case is really personal to me because back in 2016, I actually interviewed Mr. Cohen. He lives in a different locale and has a different name. On condition of the interview, I promised that I would not reveal his identity. And uh, why does he have a different name? Is, are you able to say he, in part, because of the notoriety from the case? Mm. But uh, I made a promise to him that I would never reveal his name. Um, I get media calls every year for, for <laughs> people asking me to break that promise, and I, and I never have and, and never will. But you, were you the one who found him? I mean, how do you find someone who goes by a different name? No, he actually reached out to my one of my former bosses, Gene Polisinski, mm. and contacted Mr. Polisinski, and Gene sent it my way, and we had him verify that was him through some documentation, and then I, uh, I interviewed him. But I, I can send you that article. Uh, if, yeah, if, if you, you would, because I'll put it. it in the show notes. That's yeah, kind of an interesting backstory as well. Yeah, I, I, I get calls from all sorts of authors and media shows about it. Um, of course, there's nothing I did other than I just did an interview with him, and I found it very fascinating. But there's a lot more to Cohen v. California, obviously, than just fighting words. But that is a piece of it. Was that was that how the prosecutors were justifying the the prosecution in that case were they bringing in the fighting words doctrine or is it just the they way were the supreme court looked they were at they it? made numerous arguments they said um you know the the use of the f word they said it was obscene they actually argued that it was legal obscene legally obscene and of course justice harlan's response to that is obscenity has to in some way be erotic right it has to be related to sex this isn't. It's just an amplifier. It's just an amplifier. 
they also argued uh, privacy, uh, th- that it uh, infringed on the privacy and sensibility rights of women and children that would have to view the message. And Justice Harlan's response to that was so memorable. I love talking about this to my students. He said, avert your eyes if you don't like the message. And of course, that's the case where Justice Harlan also wrote, one man's vulgarity is another's lyric. Yeah, I believe it's worth quoting here. He said, for while the particular four-letter word being litigated here is perhaps more distasteful than most others of its genre, it is nevertheless often true that one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. Indeed, we think it is largely because governmental officials cannot make principal distinctions in this area that the Constitution leaves manners of taste and style so largely to the individual. I want to rewind here. So we have Chaplinsky in Rochester, New York in 1942 or 1941, whenever the case started, uh, whenever the confrontation between Walter Chaplinsky and the the marshal. Yeah, Chaplinsky is actually Rochester, New Hampshire. That's it. Is there a Rochester, New York? Yeah, there is. Yeah. yeah, there is. That's why it's getting confused in my mind. But Walter Chaplinsky, Jehovah's Witness, is debating and it's becoming quite confrontational. People on the street, the police are called in to kind of mediate it. Uh, my understanding is they don't. And and Walter Chaplinsky ends up getting beaten up or something. And it's for that reason that he calls the police officer a fascist and a goddamn racketeer. And then you fast forward, the 1971 case, Cohen v. California, the court narrows that doctrine essentially says it can only be confined to direct personal insults. I guess a way to get around the Chaplinsky case, which did involve a direct personal insult without also justifying the prosecution of, of Cohen's jacket. But then a year after Cohen, the court also set aside the conviction of a defendant uh, who violated a Georgia breach of the peace law in what was it? The case Gooding v. Wilson, where, yes. where Wilson, uh, Johnny Wilson, faced criminal charges for yelling at a police officer. I believe he said he called the police officer a white son of a bitch. I'll kill you, you son of a bitch. I'll choke you to death. And the court reversed that conviction five to two. So what gives there? You know, that's a direct personal confrontation. Well, there, there's, a, there's a key difference there. In, in both, in the Shaplinsky case, the New Hampshire High Court had applied a narrowing construction to their state statute, which they can do, right? They're the state high court. And they had applied it only to reach fighting words. The Georgia Supreme Court in Gooding v. Wilson had not applied a narrowing or limiting construction to that statute. And that's what allowed Justice Brennan, in his majority opinion, to really decide that case on overbreadth grounds. Because the Georgia law prohibited, I think, the utterance of opprobrious language which essentially is a fancy word for offensive. And essentially what Justice Brennan said is the dictionary definition of opprobrious goes well beyond, um, you know, certainly fighting words. And this, this statute, at least as applied to Wilson, certainly is unconstitutionally overbroad. Uh, Wilson also, you know, if you think about it, you know, the true threat doctrine, I guess maybe was too much in its infancy, but the true threat doctrine began with Watts in 1969. I often wonder, you know, why they didn't try to try to cabin that more as a true threat case. Hmm. Um, they also limited it in that time period in another case called Lewis versus New Orleans. Yeah, 1974. So that would have been yeah. what, two years after. Uh, yeah, it Gideon actually came up three twice. Years. 
Yeah. yeah, it came up twice. It came up to the Supreme Court in 72 and 74. And that's a classic, what we would refer to today as a racial profiling case. Because Mally Lewis, an African-American woman, accused the pol- uh, police of arresting her son, an African-American male, um, essentially by selectively targeting him. And she came up and started cursing. And it was in a concurring opinion, I believe, that Justice Lewis Powell gave us a, a key element of the fighting words doctrine as, in, as we know it today. And that principle is that police officers are held to a higher standard, that they are supposed to exercise greater restraint when confronted with intemperate, obnoxious, profane language. They have specialized training so that it's far more likely to be considered fighting words if I'm cursing at you or you're cursing at me, and that leads us to a confrontation versus uh, one of us curses at a police officer. Yeah, the, the, that, the 1987 and, City of Houston v. Hill case said that the first Exactly, I and mean, you know this stuff cold. Yeah, <laughs> City of Houston v. Hill 1987 was another Justice Brennan opinion, and that involved an anti-gay act, uh, activist, um, Raymond Wayne Hill, who saw the police picking on one of his friends. Ironically, his last name was Hill as well. And Mr. Hill goes up to the officer and essentially says, uh, why don't you pick on somebody your own, uh, your own size? And then he, gets in, he ends up getting arrested for violating ordinance that prohibits the interruption of uh, the official duties of a police officer or some such. And there's some great language in Justice Brennan's opinion. I quote it sometimes as a, as a criminal defense lawyer, um, where he says, like, one of the principal characteristics of a free state is that we have the right to verbally challenge uh, government officials, that police officers are expected to receive a significant amount of, of criticism. And that's one way that we distinguish a free society from a totalitarian uh, totalitarian state. So city of Houston V Hill is another key fighting words case, even though it's not as, I guess it's not a pure fighting words case, but it's, it's related. Not giving legal advice here, but you see the line from Chaplinsky to city of Houston V Hill. It's a pretty much a continuous narrowing of the fighting words doctrine and significantly so when applied to the police. So if any of our listeners are here and they just get worked up and they decide they want to start yelling at the police, does the law pretty much protect most of what they might say to the police officer at this point? I thought that originally, and certainly there's a lot of case law that should support it, but it's it's a bad idea because one, you may get roughed up and then you got a criminal record and then you got to hire an attorney and it's all a hassle. But I did some research, and this led to my law review article that I did for FIRE that was, I'm proud to say, was published in the University of New Hampshire Law Review. But yeah, that, author- essay, that essay is called The Fighting Words Doctrine Alive and Well in Lower Courts. We've been talking yeah, about the Supreme yeah. Court. So Yeah, exactly. So the U.S. Supreme Court has never upheld a uh, conviction in a fighting words case since, since Chaplinsky. Which since 1942. Exactly. What I did, unfortunately, is you know digging into the case law pretty significantly. I uh, document about fourteen or fifteen cases, or more than that. But I found I, I thought they were factually interesting. 
I document about 14 or 15 cases and go through them. And then I identify different factors that led those courts to more likely find something to be fighting words. And so some of those are the fact that the courts will focus on the conduct of the defendant in addition to the speech. So they will say uh, aggressive conduct, flailing of the arms. Um, There's actually a spitting line of cases. Hmm. Uh, So if you spit at the officer, that's unprotected conduct, not protected speech. The volume of the speech is important. So that if the if apparently if the speech is at a high enough volume for a longer period of time, that can be deemed uh, fighting words. Racial slurs are uh, sort of a category of their own, and so in, in cases where there there are direct racial slurs, particularly if they're uttered by juveniles, that's actually a, a piece that I'm working on for fire right now is that I'm looking at the disparate way that courts treat fighting words cases when the speaker is a juvenile. And so the case law is not as favorable for juveniles as it is for adults. That that would seem to turn what you would think the case law would say if there were to be any discrepancies between juveniles and adults on its head, because you'd think the courts would hold adults to a higher standard than a child. (laughs) Well, except for that line. Remember that line in... um, it was in New Jersey versus TLO and Bethel School District versus Frazier, where they said the uh, constitutional rights of minors are not automatically coextensive with that of adults. And so they said, you know, minors have less rights than adults. And then I think it's traced back to the Enrique Galt case, which is really the, the seminal juvenile justice case, which says that in juvenile adjudications, Minors have some of the constitutional rights of adults, but they don't have the full panoply of rights. And so, unfortunately, I think it's a it's an offshoot of that. It's unfortunate, um, but uh, you know. So, my there, you're absolutely correct. There's all sorts of precedent that should establish that you actually do have a First Amendment right to utter profanity in an officer. Not recommended, of course. Uh, but there's enough case law out there where in the lower courts, I guess courts strain to find that something constitutes fighting words. And the reason for that, right, is the First Amendment sets such a very high bar for criminalizing pure speech. And it has to fit into one of these narrow, unprotected categories. And really the only one that applies in those situations is fighting words because, you know, true threats is cabin to serious expression of intent to kill or cause serious bodily harm. And incitement is not generally A, speaking to B, right? Incitement is A, speaking to the world at large, and then B, one of those recipients then immediately engages in in uh, unlawful action. Um, but they are all related. That's why I call them cousins in the First Amendment family. So these anti-profanity laws, for example, that still litter the books and you write about this i believe it's either in your essay or in your american bar association article are often justified if they have to go to court under the i'm assuming fighting words doctrine they don't in most cases get up to the supreme court when they are actually used in 
in a case or uh, they are actually prosecuted. So for example, in your, your article, you say there's a 1962 South Carolina law that prohibits cursing on a public highway or within hearing distance of a church or school. There's a Mississippi law passed in 1848 that prohibits using profane or vulgar language in the presence of two or more people. Those in violation can receive a $100 fine or up to 30 days in county jail. There's a Rhode Island law enacted in 1896, and I'm assuming these are still on the books, um, that provides that every person who shall be guilty of profane swearing and cursing shall be fined not exceeding $5. And I believe that South Carolina anti-profanity law was used as recently as 2016 when it was upheld after the conviction of a woman who said, this is some motherfucking shit (laughs) within 60 yards of a local church. Yeah, there's still a lot of these laws on the books, and I, I did that for actually another uh, law review for fire that ended up being published in the Thurgood Marshall uh, Law Review, I think down in Texas. And there are quite a few of those laws out there, and I don't even know how many ordinances there are. So I was just looking at state laws. There may be some ordinances or city laws that prohibit this stuff, and then no one ever challenges it. Well, but they probably, they opinion, probably don't people, get used all that often. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, that's, a, that's the, that was the whole thing. You know, in the First Amendment community, everyone kind of was really appalled at the cussing canoeist case. Do you remember that one? Timothy Boomer is a canoeist, and apparently something happens with his canoe, and he's upset, and he just goes on a tirade, a torrent of profanity, and right around the little bend are women and children, and I guess they complained, and he ends up getting arrested under a 19th century uh, law that prohibited uh, cursing in public in the presence of women and children, and um, that that created a big stir in the in the First Amendment community. Well, you got you got to wonder, right? Practically, how any of those prosecutions happen, right? If you're a police officer, you have a canoeist who's shouting profanities. Uh, children happen to be in the area. The police officer doesn't know the profanity laws. I mean, it's probably one of a thousand different laws. What, does he arrest them and then the, they get together with the prosecutor and determine what you're going to be charged with? How, how does that even practically work? I, I think what happens sometimes, I think officers don't don't like to be challenged. And of course, I, look, I don't want to knock officers, particularly in this time period. I mean, what, what a difficult job a police officer has. And yeah taught a lot of students or police officers through the years and, you know, a lot of great officers, but I, there are some officers. I don't, you know, I, I, for example, um, was driving down the road one day and the cop is out in the road and is telling me to stop. I've got a green light. And I, I didn't realize I just, I, I stopped, but I stopped later than he wanted. Mm-hmm. So I was up in the intersection and he just comes running up to me, just, uh, foul mood you know cursing at me you know and like at the time i was sort of thinking okay this is my chance to be a first amendment litigant and uh (laughs) discretion was the better part of valor i just said i'm sorry sir you know complied showed him my license he let me go i didn't do anything wrong really but i think a lot of times you know in stressful situations people don't like to be challenged you know they don't like people who are smarting off to them and and whatnot and 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 maybe, and sometimes these things occur with maybe people who've had, they've had prior run-ins with. Um, but there, there are fundamental 
problems. You know, I mean, if, if we're going to have the doctrine, I think it, it needs to be very narrowly cabined to truly direct face-to-face personal insults. Now, there's a, there's a movement afoot a bit to extend that Justice Powell police officers held to a higher standard. There's a Connecticut Supreme Court case. I think it's State versus Beckera. I may have the name slightly wrong. About yeah, Bacala. no, it involved uh, Nina Bacala. And Bacala so State, yeah, v, v, Bacala. State v. Bacala. Yeah. And what the Connecticut High Court did is they said, well, store managers are trained to deal with a lot of patrons who are upset and use intemperate language. And so we're going to essentially extend the police officers are held to a higher standard to the um, store managers held to a higher standard. So it's not fighting words when the woman behaved very badly toward a, toward a store manager. Um, there was a petition for writ of cert, and I was kind of hoping the Supreme Court would take it just so they could talk about the fighting words doctrine, but they, but they didn't do it. And, uh, you know, at some point, maybe one of these will, these will, these will come up. I keep thinking that perhaps one of these involving a juvenile or perhaps, you know, one of these statutes will be challenged all the way up. It'd be very interesting to get some Supreme Court guidance because if we don't have the U.S. Supreme Court case and we don't have a recent one, I think we're going to have these little things in the lower court case law where people are still prosecuted for this stuff. Yeah. Well, you do see the fighting words doctrine come up, um, you know, in arguments at the Supreme court and first amendment cases. I, I believe it came up in Texas v. Johnson, right? The, the flag Texas flag desecration law. Didn't they try to justify that law under the fighting words doctrine? And they did. yeah, they were looking for everything. And that was a five, you know, we, we forget now, but, we, we, we review Texas v. Johnson as a classic First Amendment case, but it was 5-4. This is the 1989 case. Yeah, right and Cohen v. California was 5-4, I believe. You know, so that's why it's so important who who sits on the United States Supreme Court. Well, it's, it's one thing that I found in my 10 years at FIRE is as First Amendment people, free speech people, we kind of accept that in doing our work, you're going to deal with people who use language that we don't on a daily basis or who are at the margins of society or pushing limits who are a bit transgressive. But every time we have a profanity case, and I assume that there's enough profanity in the world that people aren't going to be outraged about it. People are always outraged about speech that involves profanity. We had a case, I, I, forget, I believe it was at a community college in, in Louisiana. Students stormed out of a classroom, pissed off about a grade he got, I believe, might be remembering the facts wrong and used a profanity, um, not directed at anyone, but kind of mumbled it under his breath as he was walking out. Uh, and we thought this was kind of an open and shut deal. Everyone's done that, but no, people were really upset that he swore. And, I, and uh, so it always kind of takes me by surprise. And now it, now it doesn't as much cause I know it, but, um, you know, maybe that's kind of that issue in some. Well, I, I'll tell you, my my the reason I became so passionate about the First Amendment. I don't know if I've ever told this story publicly. I may have written a piece about it, but I, I'll mention it briefly. I was in high school, and I was a big fan of the Philadelphia 76ers. back when they had Julius Irving, Moses Malone, Maurice Cheeks, Andrew Tony, and some great teams. Where are you from, Philly? 
No, I just love the, the the Philadelphia 76ers. I love Dr. J. You know, he was oh, like gotcha. the Michael Jordan of our time. And they had a hard time getting past the Boston Celtics, right? Because the Boston Celtics were awesome. You know, the 86 front line of Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, maybe the greatest front line in, in basketball history. So I'm in class, and I'm talking with another student, and they – I'm talking about the Sixers, and they mention the Celtics. And I say out loud, I say, the Celtics suck. And I get booted out of class, and I can't come back to class until I go and talk to the uh, to the academic dean. And a week before, another student had used the F-bomb, and they never got in trouble. And so that, that whole experience taught me two things. One is that sometimes when you say something, you know, there are repercussions, obviously. But the other thing it taught me was selective uh, prosecution is a very real thing, right? I was treated differently than somebody else who actually said something that's probably worse. But I was like, man, that's unfair. You know, like, this is completely unfair. Why should I be punished for this, you know? It offends your sense of justice, right? Yeah, exactly. In your ABA article, which you do some reporting on the fighting words, uh, you quote someone, uh, Gunning Smith, I forget what their first name is. It might be a professor. Uh, but the they say that the fighting words exception to the First Amendment is justified as a prophylactic means to prevent immediate violence. If violence was not actually likely in the real world context, then the words cannot be punished. So my question is, shouldn't we just then incentivize, shouldn't we just then punish violence? Like if... Violence is likely in a situation as a result of someone uttering fire, fighting words. Then the, vi- the violence is probably going to happen, right? If it ne- requires face-to-face interaction. So and if it doesn't happen, then it probably wasn't m- very likely that it was going to happen. Uh, so like, yeah, doesn't it know, then incentivize violence almost? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. It's it's very prob. The doctrine is very problematic. Probably the most. Ho- uh, wholesale criticism of the doctrine and it's very well written is a it's a law review article written by a guy named Burton Kane who I don't know is still teaching but Burton Kane I think it was published in the Marquette Law Review and this is like a 125 page law review article that talks about problems with the with the fighting words doctrine one of those by the way is a selective prosecution of who actually gets prosecuted but the doctrine itself is 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 very troublesome, um, and particularly a lot of the underlying laws and ordinances that people are, are charged under. I think they're not very well drafted, and so I think they sometimes use the fighting words as a as an excuse, as a way to well, we've got to somehow narrow this darn thing. So there is this category, Supreme Court created it in 1942, and. That's why it gets mentioned all the time, as you said, in Supreme Court oral arguments, right? Because it's it is a recognized exception to the First Amendment, and it's been there for for a very very long time. Yeah, I should mention Gunning Smith is Damian K. Gunning Smith, who was co-counsel for Bacala in that Connecticut case that we were discussing before involving the store manager. I think you and I have talked about this before, but I'm offended by exceptions to the First Amendment that sort of depend on the reactions, the subjective reactions of a listener, right? Uh, Incitement's kind of like this. 
and fighting words is kind of like this. Like you speak out to the world, right? And your speech is protected unless that speech is likely to result in a listener doing something um, illegal, whether it be take vi- take violent action in the case of fighting words, I guess, or take violent action in the case uh, of, inc- of incitement. I mean, true threats makes sense, right? Because it's an exception that speaks to potential actions, not speech actions, but like physical actions uh, of a speaker. How do you think about that sort of? I'm troubled by it as well. In fact, I'd give another example. As you know, I'm really uh, invested in the K through 12 case law. And the leading standard there comes from the Tinker case, right? Tinker v. Des Moines, the, the black armband case. And the standard that the U.S. Supreme Court said is reasonable forecast of substantial disruption. Well, what sometimes happens in these Tinker cases is that the speaker is entirely peaceful. And then it's the recipients who are unruly. And their unruly actions essentially impose a heckler's veto upon the peaceful speaker. And the Seventh Circuit has, has spoken against this heckler's veto principle some, but it still exists out there. You know, it's like that Dariano case out in, in California, Dariano versus Morgan Hill Unified School District, where the kids can't wear the American flag T-shirts because this on Cinco de Mayo because the the school uh, assistant principal convinces the court that he really was concerned that there would be an outbreak of violence, even though the students who wore the T-shirts, at least on the face of the complaint and the and the pleadings, it didn't appear that they had engaged in any uh, violent acts themselves. Uh, one other interesting thing too is. It's gone beyond just the verbal speech, the fighting words. There are a whole line of uh, middle finger flipping the bird cases out there, which is kind of interesting. And there's actually a piece, I think the, I think it's called Digitus Impudicus by Ira Robbins. And he goes through and he actually details all the flipping the bird cases. But a really funny story, I was working at the First Amendment Center and one of my law school classmates uh, worked at a very prominent law firm, and I don't know why he got the case. I think it may have been a pro bono case or something, but one of his clients was charged with disorderly conduct for flipping a bird at the police officer. And he calls me up and says, you know, any cases? And it just so happened I'd been studying this, and I gave him five cases right off. He goes up to the general sessions court, quotes the five cases, and the charges get dismissed. Uh, so that was, a, that, was a, that was a good story, you know, the, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I think what makes the, the Fighting Words cases so interesting are the, the, the varying fact patterns that can arise, you know, and some of the funny things that people may say or, you know, that like the toilet tirade case that you mentioned. That, yeah. I mean, I'd be pretty upset if my toilet was clogged up, right? That's not a good thing to have happen. You know, I don't know if I would curse loud enough that my neighbors could hear it. But yeah. I should make a plug for... Fires starting to get into the TikTok game. I read a study that found that teenagers' three favorite social media apps. I think TikTok is number one, Snapchat and Instagram are the other two of the top three. Um, so we're trying to create content for that medium. And we created one on the Chaplinsky case, kind of a fun, satirical, educational video about the facts of that case. And it oh, performed cool. really well. I think of the videos we've posted so far, it's performed the best. So I'd 
encourage our listeners to go find us on TikTok and follow us on TikTok. We're really trying to grow that platform and people on it seem to enjoy it. But moving forward here, David, you've kind of already spoken to what I I suspect you're going to say, but I mean, what needs to happen with the fighting words doctrine? Does it need to be a Supreme Court decision that's focused squarely on what would be the fighting words exception? You know, we've had the come up in oral arguments in cases that are are pretty clearly not involving fighting words like flag desecration, but what needs to happen? Yeah. So, I mean, Shaplinsky is often cited for that one passage and in justice Murphy's opinion, where it said there, there are certain narrow, limited, narrow, well-defined limited classes of unprotected speech, blah, blah, blah. These include the lewd and obscene uh, and fighting words. And so that, that passage stands for the principle of categorization, that there are some unprotected categories out there. But directly to your question, I, I, I do think that there are enough of these really nasty little lower court cases out there that I'm hoping in the right case um, that the court will cabin that doctrine to very discreet particular circumstances where maybe the the statements are 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 so bad perhaps that they are akin to throwing a punch at somebody right um and i think that we need somebody to i think we needed the court to take that bacala case that would have been very interesting as well i'd like to see the court clear up the differential treatment of juvenile speakers versus adult speakers um, and I'd like the court to reaffirm the principle that they've made in many cases, uh, like Cohen uh, and uh, maybe Hustler v. Falwell and some of these other cases, that you know, offensiveness is just not a, 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 a justifiable uh, justification for censoring speech, right? It, it goes back to what Brennan wrote in Texas v. Johnson, right? If there's a bedrock principle underlying the First Amendment is the government may not prohibit the expression of an idea simply because it finds it offensive or disagreeable. And that is just black letter, hardcore First Amendment free speech law. But yet, if you look at what happens at, at the lower court level, it just it, falls away. People, Yeah, it falls away. What, what exceptions do we still have to cover, David, <laughs> in subsequent podcasts? Obscenity, I'm assuming. Yeah, obscenity and child pornography. I mean, there are really four categories of sexual expression, so those get lumped together. Obscenity, child pornography, harmful to minors, and indecency. Obscenity and child pornography are unprotected categories. Harmful to minors is unprotected for young minors, perhaps protected for older uh, adults, and uh, I mean for older minors and adults. Why does child pornography fall under an expressive category when we talk about exceptions to the first amendment it seems to me to just be unprotected conduct for reasons unrelated to the expressive nature of it to the yeah, extent well, that so there could be arguably they, be they, any... they may arise in the context of a film okay so new york versus ferber 1982 is where the court created the exception and so it's kind of the the thinking is there may be a, a film that has some artistic value but then it has one scene of child pornography so does that one scene trump the entire film Oh, well, it see, does okay. if it involves, you know, lascivious display of a minor's genitalia or some such. But um, the Ferber case is important because the Supreme Court intimated that if the evil 
overwhelmingly outweighs the expressive value of the speech, then it can be prohibited. What I think is important is, and we should applaud the Roberts Court for this, is that the Roberts Court has resisted the creation of new unprotected categories. Right? They've done that in four different cases. No uh, new exception for violent video games in Brown versus Entertainment Merchants Association. Uh, no new First Amendment exception for images of animal cruelty in the United States v. Stevens. No new exception for funeral protests in Snyder v. Phelps. And no wholesale category exception for false speech in the United States v. Alvarez. So that, that actually might be a good topic as to address the Roberts Court. That's something that Ron Collins and I also did for FIRE is that, is that we looked at the Roberts Court and its First Amendment jurisprudence uh, in free speech cases almost in toto. Uh, and that's one of the themes that we gleaned out from the Roberts Court that, that's on the positive, right? Um, I think one that really needs to be discussed because it really morphs into all sorts of exceptions is speech integral to criminal conduct. Yeah, well, like, what is that like? Collusion well, or you know, there's all sorts fraud. of things, you know, like fraud, solicitation, you know, if speech is, is intrinsically related to the underlying crime, right? Speech integral. In other words, you, you, you engage in some speech and that's part of the crime. That's not protected. And so I think that would be interesting to discuss. That That's often traced back to the Gibbony case, I think, from the 1940s. Um. Defamation is, is I've probably done a lot on that, but defamation is obviously worth discussing because there have been so many high-profile defamation suits in recent years. Yeah, I did some, you know, sparked by Trump's comments on that front uh, with Lee Levine back before he retired. Oh, yeah. His firm was involved in I mean, a lot of defamation work. So we got, it sounds like we got obscenity, speech related to criminal conduct, we still got to cover. And I am going to write down in my editorial notes to maybe get something going with you and and Ron Collins to discuss the Roberts court, because I think that is worthwhile. The Roberts court. Oh, thanks. Yeah. We've got a big piece coming out. It's about 120 pages in the Brooklyn law review. We kind of did that for fire really. When's that coming out? That might be a good time to pick. It's coming out in about a week or so. Well, shit. (laughs) We should have done it this time. We could have piggybacked on it, but maybe um, I'm going to, I think the next podcast is going to be about some of these uh, so-called critical race theory or divisive concept bills that are popping up in state houses across the country and then some of the library book bans. Um, so if any of our listeners have- Oh, those bills are terrible. Um, I've, I've written about those. I have an ABA Journal article coming out about those bills. Yeah. The, that, those are, you talk about incredibly chilling the speech of a, of a high school teacher. You got high school teachers who are afraid to talk about, I don't know, the Columbia race riot of 1949 here in Tennessee because they don't want to say something that somehow is, you know. Yeah, I want to. I I'm going to get Jeffrey Sachs, who is a professor up in Canada. He's been following all the laws, and I think he's got a database of them. So I'm going to bring him in to talk, and I I kind of want to find actually a defender of them to come on as well. And uh, sorry, my little Irish setter puppy over here. Just walked in to say hello. Uh, you probably can't see him. He's down there <laughs> exiting the room. <laughs> oh, no, that's great. I love dogs. I'm a huge dog lover. I've got two myself. And- oh, yeah. He's two and a half. Uh, he's an Irish setter, golden retriever mix, who recently bit a rock because he likes anything that looks like a ball. And 
resulted and cracked his canine tooth. So that resulted in a very expensive uh, root oh. canal and crown. We didn't, he's too young to remove the tooth and it's such an important tooth. That we uses his mouth so much. Anyway, now we're getting on to different topics, but um, yeah, that's the next podcast. So if any of our listeners have any questions about those bills or some of the stuff that's happened with libraries, please send them my way. It's either the next podcast or the podcast or two after this. I might want to get with you and Ron to talk about the Roberts court before then, especially if your Brooklyn law review article is coming out in a week or so, but I think we'll leave it there for now, David. Okay. I appreciate you as always coming on to yeah. the show and discussing uh, the exceptions. Well, you do great. Minute. You do great work and it's an honor to be on your show at any time. Well, you have an encyclopedic knowledge of some of these cases. So, uh, I always know I'm going to get a lot of meaty content from you when you come on the show. So thank you. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. That was assistant professor of law at Belmont University and fire legal fellow David L. Hudson Jr. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free speech talk, or by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast we take feedback potential listener questions dog wanted to chime in here one more time looking out the window at the snow uh, we take listener questions feedback at so to speak at the fire.org if you enjoyed this episode reviews ratings help us attract new listeners to the show we take them at apple Podcasts or google play so please consider doing that and until next time i thank you all and kilroy thanks you all again for listening